0: Welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt, in which we discuss ancient history and relevant current events. I'm Kara Cooney and I love to take deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. So let's get started. We're here. It's Wednesday, but it feels like Friday. And it, um, it just feels like uh, a very long. Oh, it's been a long week. I've had week. fires to put out at the university this week. It's been a lot of meetings, a lot of phone calls, a lot of to-doing. But the well, beginning good. of the beginning of the term is always a little—it is crazy, frenetic. It, it is. It is a little crazy, little frenetic, and there's there's a lot going on, and that's a good thing. So you know, it's all. And I'm trying to do other things. I'm supposed to work on another book proposal. Besides the fact that I that I'm three letters late. Um, rec letters. This is rec letter season, fellow professors and and instructors. You know exactly what I mean. Everyone's applying for everything, and it's just you need to write rec letters. Are so important in the United States of America for academic jobs and postdocs and applications of all kinds. And you better write a kick-ass rec letter, or if if you support the person, <laughs> and then, but it takes time and it takes um a thoughtful approach. And you can't just, you know, whip something off and send it off. It has to be done right.
1: So yeah. That's... If it's going to be done right, it takes some time.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It takes time. So Absolutely. There's a... But anyway, but we're here to talk about something else, right? Yeah. What are we talking about today? Well, you tell our dear listeners. Well, we're going to be talking about The
1: Good Kings and colonialism. The Good Kings, your most recent popular book,
0: right? Was, out, was it out 2021? Twenty twenty one. Yeah. So it, it came out came together fast. Wrote it twenty twenty, came out twenty twenty one in the fall. And yeah, it's it was super fun to write. And I guess the colonialism and the good kings, the reason we're talking about this, and it was Amber's suggestion. I said, fine, do it. Um, is that you know, I was at a at a little cocktail soiree not long ago, and a colleague and the Dean of Humanities, the past Dean of Humanities were standing there. And my colleague said to the dean, "Oh, we were talking about publications," and she said, "Well, yeah, yeah Kara's book is colonial." Right in front of me, I was like, "Damn!" Okay, I was like, drop the bomb. And I was like, "Oh wow, thank you for, for just neatly throwing the end of the bus with the dean of humanities." And the, I mean, this is how things work in the arena of combat in university cocktail soirees. And and I, I was not shocked given the, I mean, a little, yeah, you are. But then I'm like, oh yeah, remember who we're dealing with, number one. And then number two, that we're dealing with a field that is quite positivist about how it approaches its subject. And it, this was 2021, maybe 2022, but I think it was 21. And, you know, we just come out of The hardest year of the pandemic, people were gathering together in person again, at least in outdoor spaces, and because California really did shut down in large parts. And we had just been through the murder of George Floyd and all of the repercussions that that had created. We were finishing up a Trump presidency. We were facing down a January 6th uh, attempted coup in Washington, D.C. in 2021, right? That was 21, right? Um oh, when I was writing it, when I was writing yes. it so when the book yeah. right okay, um, so that that happened so all all of these things you know it's a it's a time of extraordinary change, and it was just really interesting to have the defense to maintain one's positive views of the pharaohs be that my book is colonial was an interesting take, and so the so let me just tell our readers what I think that meant because the, the person in question did not say, oh, your book, I, I mean, it was a little bit, did say, well, you can't do this because you're not Egyptian. So you can't criticize the pharaohs because you're not Egyptian. So it's, a, it's my white colonial lens of this place and that no criticism can come of an ancient people unless you are of the lineage and ancestry of those ancient peoples. So well, and, mean, and to be clear, yeah, right?
1: They were objecting because they you present the good kings a little bit tongue in cheek, right, through the lens of absolute power and authoritarianism, yeah. right. Discussing yeah. both the ancient and modern worlds, and so this accusation is saying it's colonialist of you to come at ancient Egypt like that, right? Uh, as a white American woman, and,
0: right,
1: and. Look at it through that lens,
0: right? Right, 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 right. And that the pharaohs are uncriticizable. Uh, are, we should remain in their perfected glass boxes because it's not my place to do so. And at the same time that this was coming out of the Egyptological community, and it's not all of my colleagues, but it, it's a fair number. And there, as you and I were discussing beforehand, Amber, there is no formal review of my book that says these things. These are the kinds of things that you say in an offhand remark at a cocktail soiree, right? It's not something that anybody's tried to put into print yet. And I'd be interested to see it. If it were, it would be an interesting thing to take on. But at the same time that Egyptologists are making these snide and informal remarks, in the classics world, my colleagues, I would see in the interwebs, in the social media spaces, people would say, wait, is is somebody surprised and shocked that an Egyptologist is pointing out that the pharaohs were authoritarian? Really? Knock me over with a feather, ironically meant, but are people really surprised by this? And then I remember one of the social media comments, people were what Egyptologists are. And then you, because when you leave your bubble and you look at yourself from afar, it's like seeing the back of your body and head, which you never do see. <laughs> then when you see it, you're like, oh my God, do I look like that? But, oh, but it's the... But it's the same kind of thing. So you go to the other social medias, the other groups, and everyone then was making fun of the Egyptologists for being these ridiculous people who are totally gobsmacked by their pharaoh masters and that they would never say anything against them. And I'm like, oh, wow. okay. so this is their perception of Egyptology. And so I've got the outside world thinking of Egyptologists in a particular way and then fellow. Egyptologists and archaeologists having other comments to make. And it's an interesting, it's an interesting, it's just an interesting defense that this is something that's not allowed. Well, I think that it speaks to exactly what you bring up in The Good Kings,
1: which is that the ancient Egyptians did such a good job of presenting themselves through this brilliant propaganda, sanitizing the violence and oppression that did result during the reigns of some of these kings. I don't think that you would have an Assyriologist who would have such a positive, glossy version of rulers in any part of ancient Mesopotamia. But think about the Assyrians, right? They're like throwing up that blood and gore in the images, right? Trampled bodies, beheadings, this sort of thing. They did not sanitize in the way the the Egyptians did. And so I think that the theme that you discussed in the Good Kings of the way in which Egyptologists completely buy into the ancient Egyptian propaganda. I think that this is exactly what you get as Egyptologists, that it's a little bit more difficult for them to self reflect.
0: Yeah, a couple of things there on, the, on that point. Number one, when you talk about the Neo Assyrians and you're talking about Esra. You're talking about Ashurbanipal, these amazing kings who are known for relocation, mass relocations after a victory, who are known for atrocities to, to get that victory and maintain the threat of their power, et cetera, et cetera. There is no nation state that can say, we are neo-Assyrian. There's no Assyria. There are an Assyrian people. Are they? How are they? They speak Assyria. It's a complicated ethnic group, but I'm not going to try to equate them, but they don't have a place in the world that is like Egypt. Egypt is this special geographic location that has been called something separate from the rest of Northeast Africa, Mediterranean, and West Asia for thousands of years for, true, argue, yeah. yeah, for 5,000 years. It is a separate place. And there are Egyptian people who claim it and know that they live there. And so I think that the colonialist takedown of the good kings is very much a part, it is part and parcel with the support of Egyptian current nationalism. And that if you want to work and cooperate with the Egyptian government as it is now, then it is not your place to make any sorts of critiques of the way other people might govern themselves, even if those people that you're talking about lived. 3,000, 2,000, 1,000 years ago, this is, it's not your place. You can't talk about it. And first, that's extraordinary that we're not, that makes all of political science colonial, that depending on what place in the world it is you're studying, that if you don't have that ancestry in your blood, that you are somehow part of a colonial mindset. I'm not saying colonialism doesn't exist. I'm not saying I'm not a privileged white woman, With education that other people don't have access to. I I am all of those things. But then to say, oh, well, she's not allowed to do this, it's an interesting defense. And it's a very useful for my, if we're going to put things on a gradient of political action, my left wing critique of a right wing authoritarian regime can be rebutted with another left wing defense of how dare you be so colonial in the same way that an LGBTQ left wing. Attempt at freedom for all can be rebutted with a reactionary feminist, but you don't have a female body, pseudo-left wing defense of, but you don't belong, you transgender woman, kind of defense. And it is an interesting, it's an interesting tactic. And and I it think it is it gets quite messy very quickly. It really does. It really gets really messy really quickly. And and Amber, you know this that when I wrote The Woman Who Would Be King. And I talk about her emotions, her decision-making, what it was like to be a woman and have children and assumes things in her world. I was called universalist in a, a book review in the Times Literary Supplements. And, and I, I have really used that word universalist. What does it mean? It means I'm not allowed to compare Egypt to other places, ancient Egypt. It must exist within its own special separate place in a vacuum away from everything else that you cannot compare it. And this links to our other discussion about can history be apolitical or is that a fallacy? And we decided it was a fallacy. But this idea that something can be fetishized and exist separate in time and space from everything all the time, and you have to deal with it in a particular manner, I find that racist. And I find it Dehumanizing to ancient peoples, and it's refusing an emotional humanity to ancient peoples. The second part of your big point (laughs) was that Egyptologists often, and the public really, because I have some stories that I could tell about the reaction of some of the public to this work, they like to, or they just do without thinking, they connect religion. Egyptian religion, however you understand that, this beautiful, beloved by me, polytheistic system, they connect that with the pharaohs inextricably. It cannot be disconnected, that the pharaoh's power is part of that beautiful religion and that you can't disentangle the two. And I think this is very zeitgeisty. This is very much a part of our own world today because we have a hard time, in the United States in particular, but really globally, as we see all kinds of nationalisms and authoritarian regimes rise up, they always have an ideology and very often they have a religious foundation. And it's interesting to then see you can't criticize Egyptian religion. How dare you? And if my retort is I'm criticizing the use of that religion, the political use of that religion, then I might get what place do you have to do that? And there I, again, you lose the thread pretty quickly. so
1: Yeah, it's it's an interesting environment that we have these days in which the questions that you ask are one thing, but then also the identity of the questioner really plays into the debate that Mm -hmm. comes after a question is posed. But something I was thinking about as you were talking is you make a great point about modern Egyptians making a claim of ancient Egypt very clearly stated through the current regime. Just think of the parade, the pharaohs were being moved from the Egyptian museum to the new Grand Egyptian Museum.
0: So it's... No, to the National Museum of Egyptian Civilization, to the Nemec, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it's okay. It's a confusing... versus gem,
1: right? Yeah. So you've got It's a confusing landscape. Yeah, yeah. So they were being moved. But it was... The point is there was a huge parade. Mm Mm-hmm. A very clear point of national pride and connection was being made and and there is definitely an atmosphere right now of if you're not an Egyptian, then what are you doing even talking about this, uh, particularly mm-hmm. in a way
0: that isn't very flattering mhm mhm yeah it, it's and you might wonder how and why that works because. Egypt is currently 90% Muslim. It used to be 80% Muslim, and you had many more Christians in Egypt than you have now. But the nationalism goes hand in hand with a religious idealism, and that religion is Islam. And if you read the Quran, in the same way that you read in the Exodus, you will find that the Egyptian leader called Pharaoh, Per A'a, the great house, is not depicted in a kind light, is not depicted in a positive light. He is depicted as Pharaoh, the part of every human that is not humble, the part of every human that refuses to see the other side, the part of every human that decides to just grasp and take rather than listening and trying to have some sort of connection to the gods, the part of every human that thinks they can act like a god. And that part is exactly what Egypt has until quite recently disconnected its nationalism from. And to see those two things put back together, it's these books aren't written by mistake. We're all part of our zeitgeist. We're all working with what we have, which is why I refer again to our podcast where we talk about history not being a political, that there's no way to do it. They're all writing within the political soup that we exist in. And as such, our mindsets will be turning one way or another in the same way that Tolkien writing Lord of the Rings is taking from his experiences in World War I and you can't, and in the midst of the beginnings of World War II and on through the war, you can't expect anything else. That cosmic, those series of cosmic battles that were a part of his world were what created that novel. Now, somebody listening to this would be like, yeah, but you're not writing a novel. You're not writing fiction. Who the hell do you think you are? But history is always a construct. History will always be made of pieces of evidence that are pulled from texts, from buildings, from different artifacts and different things. And you put them together in multiple combinations and recombinations. And how you recombine them is going to be a part of the world that you're a part of. But it's, you know, you talked about the parade that went from Tahrir Square to the neighborhood of Fustat and the National Egyptian Museum and how Sisi then bowed to every king as he came in and queens too and were installed in that national museum. And there is now globally a And we all know this, right and left, we all know this, that there is a global protection of the billionaire class, of the authoritarian ruler, the good king, the good ruler, and this notion of a kind of prosperity gospel, that if God made you wealthy, then you were meant to lead. If the gods blessed you with this power, then you were meant to have it, and it should be unassailable. This is where we find ourselves in the world today, where the ends justify the means. And we see it everywhere. And everyone's discussing what even is democracy? How does it work when there are people who are worth over $300 billion or more? And it's, yeah, it's it's an interesting time. And I think it's perfectly
1: valid to pick up a book like The Good Kings or any other book and read it and be like, you know what, it's kind of bullshit. You know, I disagree with X, Y, Z. What is, look at the perspective that she's coming from. Look at who she is. Look at what she's writing about. No, I'm not buying it. But to start from the place of, no, because of who you are, you shouldn't have even approached this topic or discussed it in this way. That's where I think that you're really crossing a line. Okay, if you don't have a particular identity you're only allowed to think and speak about this and that this over here that's my purview i i'm i don't
0: want your opinion it's perfect because this book is a deep dive examination of power i'm trying to understand where power comes from where it finds its foundation and and i'm also and i do this in the introduction in the first few pages jettisoning the idea of a modern exceptionalism, that we are any more progressive, any more evolved than the ancient peoples, and instead claiming very, very openly that we exist in the same patriarchal structures, the same complex interweaving of religion, power, military, and money, and that there's no reason to not use this history that we do have mostly written by the winners and written by the kings themselves, but there's no reason not to use it to try to understand the world that we exist within. And indeed, the stakes are even more than that because One could argue, and I do argue in the book, but other people are making this argument all the time, that we exist in late capitalism, whatever we, oh, late capitalist structures. You hear the words late capitalism thrown around all the time. I would say that we exist in late patriarchy. And how late? I don't know. (laughs) The future. But I can tell you that I can look at Ramses II and see today. I can see the same patterns. Is it because I'm imagining it? Well, we could argue about that. We could get into the details and you could be like, well, I don't think this is exactly right. or That's exactly right. And I'd be like, okay. But for you to say that Ramses II is of a wholly different system, a wholly different way of life, I think is a fallacy. I think it's wrong. I think that means then that foundational religious books and like the Bible, have nothing to teach us today because they're wholly divorced from the the world that we exist in today. And I would push back very strongly against that. When you accuse someone of being colonialism, you're like, you don't belong here. You can't be a part of this discussion. And I'm not saying that colonialism shouldn't be a moniker for some people and some systems. But post-colonialism understands that there is no way of pulling the colonialist out of the colonial a structure they've created that you have to integrate the two, and even if you are able to just pull out the colonial overlord, what is left behind is something that has already been colonialized, and there is no way of cleanly pulling it out. It's an expectation of some sort of ethnic purity or national purity or historical purity, and there there is no such thing. History is fucking messy, and this history. I wanted to make it messy. I didn't want to write another book on the great kings and the history. And this happened in this year and that happened in this year. And it was this amazing thing. It has already been done and it's been done well. And I use those books and read them. I wanted to write something that made people go, oh my God, we are like them. They are like us. This is the same system. Look at us fighting the same battles. Look at us believing the same religions. Look at us doing these same things. And if I hit that a little too close, and there's people in power saying, no, you must stay away, then I think I'm getting close to where I want to be, actually. And I think it's good to emphasize something that you said in there, which
1: is, you know, neither of us are saying that colonialist histories or writing or perspectives don't exist. What I think is Always fun about you and when you get or receive criticism. I love it that you think it's fun.
0: I think it's fun. Yes, I think (laughs) it's fun.
1: I'm like, (laughs) pop (laughs) the popcorn. Let's see what happens. Uh, I think it's interesting because, and fun, because a lot of scholars, it's very predictable. They get very defensive. They buckle down into their position. They're completely in their trench, eyes above, looking at the next attack that's going to come ready and tense for it. But a lot of times when you get criticism, you're kind of like, oh, okay, so the good kings, you're calling it colonial. That's interesting. Okay, let's look at why you're saying that it's colonial. Let's look at how this came to be. And so it, it generates discussion, I think, if someone's open to it. So you think, okay, well, yeah, here's how everything is playing together to create this environment in which you write this book and from a complete opposite perspective, right? Of of being a, a, a colonialist and yet being immediately labeled that very thing. And so I think it's it's interesting that if you are open to it, criticism can actually further the conversation. And if you're not immediately defensive about it and you're like, okay, let's engage. Absolutely.
0: And it's the same thing that happened to me. With that, what, the other podcast that we did about body power and how I wrote an an article talking about how power and its four systems—ideological, economic, military, and political—using Michael Mann's four systems of power had a missing component, and that component was that of the body. And m- the criticism was vehement and fierce. It was sent out for peer review. This is what academics do we send things out for peer review? So it's sent out for a volume of peer review. Comes back, essentially. Telling me that I'm anti feminist. Right. They're, um, they're accusing you of right. having a gender or a
1: sex essentialism and that you're not acknowledging
0: yeah. the yeah.
1: variation on the binary.
0: Right. And so the reaction was, How dare you accept that there's a binary when I'm very clear in the article that I'm not accepting it. I'm saying this is an imposed binary. But the fact that I'm writing about it at all, that there's a body that needs to be transcended. If you're a woman in an ancient patriarchal or modern patriarchal community, just go to a, one of the red states that has disallowed abortion and I'll tell you how the woman's body can be used and abused. But so I'm making an argument that's saying, we we need to think about this other component. Let's think about the body and how it can actually commodify us. And it's hard to transcend. And that if we don't talk about it, then all of these women are going to be imprisoned by the bodies that that the patriarchy can so easily make something out of. And then I'm called anti-feminist, essentially, with the critiques that I'm getting and that I shouldn't force the world into a binary. And then it's, it's just an interesting way of trying to take something down when the book, as I wrote it, The Good Kings, is meant to be anti-colonial, however you define that. It's meant to dissect systems of power so that you can see colonialism better. And that's why I have the last chapter in there about Taharka. So that one can discuss the idea of colonialism and how a twenty fifth dynasty imperial power, or it's larger than the twenty fifth dynasty isn't it the Kushite imperial power is inextricably linked with having been colonized brutally colonized by ancient Egyptians for thousands of years, and then it is something different, its ruling group, its status groups are something different because of that colonialization and That's as much a part of this discussion as as anything else. That's
1: an excellent point and also leads me to something else that I think of when someone makes a, a criticism, which is ask yourself, do they seem like they've actually read the material or did they just read the dust cover and the subtitle and look at the author picture and hear some buzz here or there from other people who, oh, did you see this book? I always wonder, have they read it? Have they paid attention um, when reading it? Because the same thing goes for your Bodies in Power article, is that a lot of things were in there, but if you read one thing and that immediately sets you off and you're you're not really following and, and taking the time to pay attention to any kind of nuance, very easy to skate directly to a conclusion. But again, in the same way, those criticisms, I think, all to the good because you incorporate that into the, yeah. the way you think about it and the way you present it. It's like, okay, something needs to be clarified here. And you go from there.
0: Yeah. The more butthurt people get, the more interesting the whole thing is. And also the more intriguing it is to me that. The Egyptians themselves excelled at connecting their power with a religious system that was so much bigger than themselves, such that criticizing the pharaohs is like criticizing Osiris, or criticizing ISIS, which is not my point. It's not my point at all. And it's why politicians are so successful today when they go out holding a Bible, claiming Jesus, claiming whatever religious structure that they have and saying, attack me, you attack Jesus, for instance. And that's done for breakfast in this world and particularly in this country. And it's amazing how much it it seems to put people into certain boxes, but also how intensely important religion is for political power. And again, I've made this point before, but I really like the idea that if we came back from 3,000 years ago, and we looked at the way we dress or the way we do our hair, or we would look at these outfits and be like, "What weird looking outfits, but we're living in it. So we don't see it now. Looking at ancient Egypt gives us that perspective of not being in our world. There is no ancient Egypt really left. Even the language has largely been eradicated except in the Coptic Christian church and maybe a few people who still speak it at home. But I think much of this has been largely lost. But because we can look at Egypt and see that it's so different in the way it looks, it's, that doesn't mean that as people, they're a people to be fetishized and non-comparable. It means that we can see the differences that much more clearly because it's not exactly the water in which we swim. It's different enough so we can say, oh, wow, look at that weird hat the king is wearing. Look at that weird outfit. And we would never do that. And so they must have really connected religion and power. We don't do that anymore. And bullshit. We do it every day, all the time. And if it's easier to recognize in the ancient world so that you can apply it to the modern world, in, which is the water in which you swim and make it so you can see it, so that you can see the ones and zeros of the matrix, then that's a useful exercise. I'm not saying that the exercise that I'm embarking upon is always going to be successful, but it's hopefully going to make. Um, people think, and it makes me think. And I don't want to write a boring when 1867 blah 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 blah. I, I don't want to. Is that my style? I wouldn't finish it. And so this is the way I have to write. This is the way I'm compelled to write. I'm not going to stop doing it. And then <laughs> let's continue to collect the monikers of shame as we monikers as of we go shame. along. Well, I don't
1: know. <laughs> oh, carrot! If you weren't such a firebrand, uh, you would have far fewer problems. In I would. But Thank I would be so bored. Feeling.
0: You would. I, would. I would be so bored. It would. You would. Be, and also, and I wouldn't be doing what we're all supposed to be doing here in this world. We're just trying to figure shit out. At least that's what I feel I'm supposed to be doing because it's a crazy-ass puzzle that we live in right now. And as Amber and I sit here, the group known as Hamas has invaded parts of the polity known as Israel. And wrought havoc. And now the polity known as Israel is now just bombing the shit out of Gaza and the land war is about to begin. And you can't get more brutal on either side with the videos and other things that I see in social media. I was looking at it yesterday and my husband Rem is like, here, you gotta put that away. Put it away. Don't you know. But but you look at it and you're like, what was it like? I I saw this woman in Gaza. It's heartbreaking, this video, and she's screaming with the, she's holding the hand of her probably 10 or 11 year old daughter. And she's saying, when will it stop? When will it stop? My children died today. They died today with empty bellies. They died today hungry. They didn't even get to eat. She's crying. Her daughter's crying. And I thought, this is a siege. And this is what Israel has promised on Gaza, a siege. And this is what a siege is. A siege is mothers with their starving children." not able to handle it anymore, not knowing what to do, wishing they were all dead probably because a slow siege is worse than than a fast bomb or some quick way out. I go to these places in my mind as a historian, but also as a human being with emotions. And I just think, what was it like when you were in a city that was being sieged? And you could read in the Taharka article, there's The Pia invasion and he sieges certain cities until finally they come crawling out and they give him a whole bunch of horses. Here, take these horses, leave us alone. We need to eat. And and we're so, in the United States in particular, not always, there's a lot of homeless in the land of the home home of the homeless here in Los Angeles, where you can get an idea of that kind of humanity and living in inhumanity. But to put yourself into those situations, I think that. If we don't write histories with emotion and hypothetical thinking and creative understanding and comparison with the world that we're living in, open comparison, such that you can make a new comparison if that one's not right, then we're missing out on what it is we're supposed to be doing. And we're forgetting that right now, histories are being written about the Hamas slash Gaza, because they should be separated, Israel conflict of 2023, which will probably only get worse, that we could write about that in very antiseptic terms. But when you see the video of the woman screaming out, you're like, oh, God, that's exactly what I would be thinking as a mother. Kid was starving when he died. What the hell is the point of any of this? And I'm not saying I was able to get to that granularity of people's emotions and the good kings. I didn't. I kept it up at the sphere of power. You know, Putin in his secure thinking space as he's determining his Ukrainian invasion or whatever, that's where I was in this book. But there are other people that could write other histories, and I would be thrilled to read them, to get into those mind spaces and people spaces, you will have to engage in some hypothetical thinking. You will be criticized.
1: I think that's what's useful about studying ancient history as opposed to even more modern periods of history, because as you say, it's easier to distance yourself from it a little bit. Like, yes, you try to get at, okay, what was it like? But it's still distant enough that you can look at it in terms of, you know, like you were discussing in the bodies and power podcast of Michael Mann's rubric, economic power, military power, ideological power, so on. But it's interesting because my older son is about 13 and he's very much into history and particularly military history. And distance as he is just watching the news, it occurred even to him as he watched it, he's like, oh, so I can understand things that happen. I can understand history, but this idea of people who have to live through it yeah. is a is a whole other way to look at it. I think that this kind of came crashing down for him, and he was just looking at it like, "Do you get it? Do you get that this is this is a huge thing?" And yes, you know. And I think that is, like you said, ancient history can be helpful in that way, and that you can be a little bit more distance and pull out the patterns of power that when you're confronted with more immediate modern events and human suffering, that you're looking at that person in front of you and not thinking of the big picture or how was it that people seeking power resulted in suffering on such a massive scale?
0: And it's good to keep it in mind. Yeah. Yeah. My son was asking me some things about this too. And my son is not as Thoughtful as your son, historically, he's very thoughtful about rock music and and wants to go back to the 1990s and become a member of Nirvana. He's a throwback too, which is really interesting. But so he has the things that he's really serious about. But he's watching us watch the news. We don't often watch the news, right? I read the news. I can't consume this stuff and keep my historical brain clean. It's a rare thing when I'll turn on the news. But when something like this happens, you're like, oh, camera. Or, or I'm watching a video in, in one of the social medias, something like that. And and he'll ask, he'll like, he's like, what's going on? Where is this place? And I know I only have a brief moment to connect with this child and go, okay, there's this place. It's in, It's over here. And there are people who believe this. And there are people who believe that. And they there's not enough space and there's this many people and these people are caged up and these people are taking more of their space. And when people get caged up, then they lose their minds and they want to create terror because they have no other outlet. And what did people think was going to happen? And <laughs> and obviously you can see my opinions as I talk about this quite generally, but still. And, and he's nodding, okay, okay. And then like, he's back off to listening to Smashing Pumpkins. But like, it's... It, history connects with most people when it connects emotionally. That's the only way my son will ever be a part of it is if he's seen something where it's like, "Oh my god, what was that horrible event?" Then it's not history. Then it's a living reality that happened a while ago. And it's an emotional living reality of extraordinary painful change that people were not prepared for, that it's extraordinary painful change that can be driven by simple emotions like hate and revenge. And those emotions can turn the tides of who what people are and whether they prosper or fail and how they're perceived on the world stage. It's it's interesting to see that in my own family. It's a good thing for me to be a historian in a place where history is not respected. <laughs> and my own, hey, preach. So you're like, oh, I spend my life doing this. and Like whatever, that's stupid and goes off and plays the drums or whatever it is. Not that I'm ever going to be able to lure him to this kind of life, but I know what if I've got a hook, then even he might listen to what I have to say. And sometimes he does. Sometimes he's like, wait, mom, what's going to happen? I'm like, I don't know. But what's happened before is this. And this is the kind of power that they're asking for. And then he listens, you know. Right. So I, I, I think do have him sometimes.
1: From time to time, we have in the course of modern events, we have things that remind us that. We like to think of our times as being exceptional in one way or another, and then to be reminded that we're not, that, like I would say, the patterns of power, the human suffering that comes along with the push and pull of the powers that be is something that we very much have in common with people throughout history. I think that some people are more comfortable with that idea than others.
0: Yeah, I'll think of criticism of my power work in terms of women and that there is actually a great deal of resentment against my work claiming that women actually didn't rule the world, that functioning within a patriarchal system, they were pawns and placeholders for a much larger system that they could not control and did not change. And it's an interesting pushback where people want to be positivist about feminist progress. And, and I would rather be very brutally realist about what it is we're actually living in and where women find themselves. And yeah, so it's in the same way that my book, When Women Ruled the World, has been criticized for being anti-feminist and depressing and bleak. And why didn't women actually have power? Because I place it within that patriarchal sphere of power the good kings is, how dare you take down the Egyptians? It's all we've got. Or they they were amazing. And what the hell are you doing? And I'm like, well, yeah, but I'm but, focusing on particular kings. So, but, yeah, but it's you, that emotional. It's that emotional, right? But here's the thing as well. Are you really taking
1: them down or are you just bringing them to our level? If if you know what I mean, you know, yeah. To, yeah. to look back at the past, to look at the ancient kings of Egypt, and just hold them on a pedestal to a certain degree. But then when the good kings, you very much bring them down to our level. I think that, like you said, you didn't set out to to create a takedown. You set out to make sense and to find common threads.
0: And some things are just fucking weird. Like, why is Sisi ruining his regime by putting all of this money and attention? and coercion into building a new capital. Why? What is that going to really get him? Because you can just see that the pain is coming. And why? And how does this work? And so I try to go into the mind of the ruler who wants to be great or perceives himself as great or whatever. And you're like, okay, so I can see the short-term solution, but then what's your long-term end game? And then I'll think, well, Akhenaten tried to do this and very much in the same way, I think, pulled a tremendous amount of cash from pre-existing spaces and sources and redirected them, but used his elites to do so, subverting certain elites and empowering other elites, but coercing all of them in many ways and saying, fine, here's the money. You're not going to get any more. Do what I need or you will hear from me and say what you can. Good luck. And so then you get, Bioarchaeologists like Gretchen dabs at at Amarna who are finding graveyards full of children with chronic and acute stress fractures, malnutrition, all kinds of conditions that you can see in the skeletal remains that remind one of a work camp or gulag type condition. And that's what happens when I'm not saying this is what CC's capital is built on, but CC's capital is built on demands that certain elites build certain things with certain amounts of money and go into a debt countrywide to create something for what? That's not needed. It's not necessary. What's needed is to revamp and renew the spaces that already exist. The cities of Alexandria, of Cairo, of Ossou, Luxor, so on and so forth. There's so much that's needed in the infrastructure, but instead you build around, you build a new space. But Just seeing that in the modern world and going, what the absolute hell? Why would someone decide to do that? You're like, well, this has happened before. So let me look there. Let me look there. And if I can kind of understand that and see what happened with that, then maybe I can get into the mindset of the people who are agreeing to do this now. And then the other thing, like, why does no one say no? You're like, oh my God, everyone's in debt. No one can afford coffee, sugar, let alone bread and beef and all of these things. Or I should have done that the other way around, but whatever. But no one can afford food. And Elites are arguably getting richer in many places in the world, right? And the poor are getting poorer, but no one's like, you know what, guys, this isn't going to work out long term for us. There's going to be some shenanigans. Like people are going to get really pissed off. Wait a minute, people are getting pissed off. Maybe we should start to change. Maybe we should do something different. And no one does. And no one did in Akhenaten's time either. Everyone's like, we're going to keep building the city. And I mean, or maybe they did. Maybe that's why he died. Maybe they killed him. I have no idea. But it's amazing. How people go along with the folly and don't say anything. Don't do anything. I don't get it. One thing about
1: humans is that we're not known for choosing to think about the long term and to give up benefits or comforts that we might have here in the short term. I think that's readily apparent given the political situation in America right now. The whole this is a problem for later on down the road is definitely it's easier. And if you learn anything from studying authoritarians in the past is that they're not necessarily thinking of a long-term solution. Or rather, if they are, they're going about it in in a very messed up way because they almost every time ensure that it's not going to last and that Mm -hmm. the the fall is inevitable and will come sooner rather than later.
0: The other thing is, is any historian has to try to imagine what the person in the past would, would, was doing, what they were thinking, whether we write that down or not. It's what we're we're like, why was, why did Ramses II put all these things up saying, oh, I won at Kadesh, even though he didn't necessarily win. And how did that work? And what do people think? And we're, we're doing these things. But very few of us act like authoritarianism. <laughs> I mean, and I don't see you being super authoritarian, sociopathic, psychopathic, but If you can't think that way because you're not a psychopath, you're not the authoritarian, you're not somebody who is willing to do certain things, then you have to look back to the past and think, how would somebody like that behave? How has somebody like that behaved in the past? And the best models you have are people who fit those patterns before. So then you can apply those to people in the world today. And that's that's a very useful thing. We are neither of us bullies, Amber, I like to believe. And yet authoritarianism is a bully regime. It's look at that big strong man with all the damn money and look at how he monopolizes the violence. That's a bully that I can get behind. I need me some of that. And so it's an association with the bully to get what you want. And if you're not a bully, then you need to do the deep dive dissection of how the bully thinks. So that you can, and how the bully uses religion that you may think is awesome. The bully could be brilliant at taking a beautiful religion full of extraordinary transformation and deep magic and turn it into something that is deluded and sickened and weakened, but it serves his regime long term, short term, it serves it. And then how do you extricate the two? That's it's a very difficult thing. And then when you're writing about it, how do you then like and, and this is a place where I think mean, we can all improve. But like, how do you then write so that the religion is separate from the bully who's twisting the religion or at least the trappings of the religion around his finger? And that's these are not, these are not easy things to pull apart, nor are they today. It's just not. It's not.
1: No, not at all. Let me ask you, as much work as there still needs to be done. We are in a time where people are starting to pick things apart, look under the hood, so to speak, and to question the way things have been done in the past, particularly in a field like Egyptology that has almost purely colonial roots, right? With colonial Britain, France, Germany, white Europe was, they were right there at the beginning of the field of Egyptology. And that is starting to be questioned and like you said, looked at in a very different way. We were mentioning before we started the podcast, Klaus Jurman's article on, what was it called? The Pharaoh's
0: New Clothes. Yeah, Um, I've got it right here. Yeah. Pharaoh's New Clothes on post-colonial Egyptology, hypocrisy, and the elephant in the room.
1: Right. Scholars like him are starting to say the quiet part out loud and other conversations are beginning to happen within the field. From your perspective, I mean, have you seen changes? Do you see
0: progress being made? Oh, it's such a hard question. I mean, this article was such a tour de force. And just let me read just a a teeny bit of the first paragraph. It says, this essay makes one, this this is Klaus Jormer, this essay makes one overarching proposition. While Egyptology is gradually trying to come to terms with its problematic past, it is in an almost reckless manner turning a blind eye to its problematic present, thereby risking forfeiting its future. And <laughs> you can't get more ballsy than that. It's one of the bravest pieces of work that I've ever read. And I think it needs to be read and re-read. It's read in a, It's written in a very scholarly way. And his audience was a scholarly audience. And I think... Well, when I was at ICE, the International Congress of Egyptologists, this last, when the hell was it, August, August of of 2023, mm-hmm. I mentioned it in one, in the the Future of Ancient Egypt panel, and there were nods and then no one wanted to talk about it. Because talking about this article is to set yourself up for criticism, charges of colonial criticism of the modern Egyptian regime through ancient Egyptian analysis. And I don't think anybody wants to do that because they know what the cost is. Now, some yeah, and of the cost that like, you're
1: referring to is to be
0: able to work in Egypt. Yes. Yes, it's two things. It's to be able to work in Egypt, but it's also academia is not training brave thinkers. Certainly not these days in the humanities. There are brave thinkers. Sometimes brave thinkers get hired into assistant professor positions. But most of the time, the people who are making it to the top are those who are told to stop comparing, to stop making things political, to just put in the facts, ma'am, and keep it safe and clean. That's what academia trains you to do. I mean, just the word training is like setting up academia as a killing space of we will break you down and remake you into something that that doesn't think for yourself anymore, that you think according to the literature that has been written, how you cite it and this kind of rigorous technique. On the one hand, I see an extraordinary fear of if I speak out, then I won't be able to work in Egypt anymore. But on the other hand, I see an almost greater fear that if i speak out and i put myself into this political melee that i will then be considered one of those troublemakers one of those difficult academics and not and not be hired not get a postdoc not get something else and i'm not saying that people aren't working on difficult subjects like multiculturalism immigration gender studies. There's a lot of hot topics out there. And there are, there are a lot of brave people out there. I'm not going to make a list and name names necessarily, because there's a lot of people I would forget and they'd be like, you didn't mention me. And there are a lot of brave, amazing people out there making brave and amazing analysis and doing really good work. So I don't want to say that that's not happening, but the culture right now is one of overwork, underpay. in a a higher education system that is being destroyed by late capitalism and private equity, we all feel it. We all know that we were brought up in an academy of 40% tenured or tenure track professors and we're now less than 15%. And all we do is write letters of recommendation and do service and try to make up for the 25%, 35% whom we have lost. And if you go back to 1965, not that long ago, historically, we were at 90%. Tenured or tenure track faculty. And it's just in the same way that we used to have unions everywhere. And now everyone's brought in on contract. I mean, it's a brutal world owned by short term sell it short. How can I rate this and make some money kind of way of living? And higher education is part of that as well. So people are thinking very conservatively and about safety and even those brave people who enter into this field at all i mean amber it's it's fucking stupid right you're like i'm gonna do egyptology and what did people tell you when you left yoga illinois stupid i mean what the hell are you thinking and it's like the stupidest riskiest thing you could possibly do and you you would think You get all of those people together who are like, I am going to study these ancient dead people and I cannot think of doing anything else and I'm going to be brave and do it. Well, you do it. And then a long way to have this dream, you have to give up your boldness. You have to give up your imagination. You have to give up so much as you are trained into being a certain kind of thinker. And it's, you know, I see it at UCLA. If I'm like, go be bold. And people are like, well, yeah, they've been out in the world. I'm not the only one that's talking to them like, but this person's going to criticize, that person's going to criticize, I don't really know, I don't want to deal with that. Or I think I'm going to say it this way. I'm like, okay, we can't all be bold all the time. It's exhausting. So right now I see in the field, so much exhaustion. Everyone is tired. They're just goddamn tired. And it's hard to put yourself out there and be brave when, when it doesn't get you anything, when it doesn't, serve to to bring eyeballs instead you're just going to be criticized for it and be like oh you know how she is she's just always making everything political kerosies reuse everywhere whatever it is is. and the more you see that for somebody else the more they're not necessarily going to do it themselves so i see i don't see i see a lot of brave people having to couch their bravery in a certain writing style or disciplinary communication that that takes a lot of it away. But I see a public very interested in it. I oh, and absolutely. Yeah, I do see that people are all
1: about questioning the the narrative or the accepted narrative
0: these days. I mean, what's one of the most popular TV shows out there, Amber? Ancient Aliens. Damn right. Now, what is Ancient Aliens main premise? That there's some deep dark conspiracy that both you and I are a part of, that we're keeping the secrets of the way things really work from the people, the people. And what it's like a, the... instead of American dad,
1: it's American Egyptologists, and we all got a little alien living with us who's explained to us how the yes. pyramids were built.
0: Yeah. And we're, and we're keeping the secrets and not letting people have it. But in a way, it's true. In the same way that the Exodus story didn't include a parting sea and the swallowing up of the army necessarily, and didn't necessarily include 10 plagues in the order that it was put in or whatever. It's still true. It's still about the demise of a colonial hegemony, of, of a kind of power that Egypt would never have again. And when Pharaoh's army is swallowed up, it is a metaphor for the loss of power of the Egyptian state and leader of the entire ancient Near East. And so Exodus is true. And I would say at the same time, ancient aliens is also true in that what higher education has become is a system of gatekeeping, of learning the secret handshake and the secret code, of subsuming yourself to a larger culture that you have to get along with or you will not be accepted and included, and not Speaking truth to power, working with the system as it serves you, working with the toxic individualism and egotistical toxic individualism at that, if you can get it. And there is a distrust among people about, and I'm not saying every academic's like this. Not my most of my colleagues, some, but most of my colleagues are not like this. But it is a culture that does not serve a connection with people who love history and the past and want to know more about it. We're not doing ourselves any favors in keeping this knowledge for ourselves in the way that we do it and not connecting with the larger discourse about what the hell is going on in the world today. And yeah, somebody in poli sci or American history is like, I'm doing it. And that's great. But ancient historians need to be in the mix. Because, and we're not doing it, there's a smattering of people who are, and those numbers are, they are growing. There are people out there who are using their ancient world chops and then applying it to the modern world. There are, but I think we could all be more brave.
1: I, I agree. And it, it is a disheartening point that you make that if you do enter into academia, that original love that you had, you have to temper it. And it has to morph into something that fits into that mold that you were describing. And it's a luxury to not have to do that. I think that's why someone in your position is important for the conversation, because you do, whether it's positive or negative, you at least begin a conversation. And you'd certainly make people think. I've read reviews, even people that say, you know what, didn't really care for this book, but it made me think. Whether those are good thoughts or bad thoughts, it's still creating a conversation, and I think that I agree with you. There are people that are coming out, Klaus Jormann, and conversations are happening. And it's going to take a long time, uh, particularly as you said, because the future of the humanities is so uncertain. But the seeds have been planted.
0: Amber, here's that you brought this up right before we started. You're like, you got to mention Nick Reeves, and I was like, oh yeah, oh yeah. So this is huge. What is Nick Reeves doing? He's going out there and saying, you guys, we may have missed something. There could be a tomb behind a tomb. And I found the line where it could be in the corridor. And I did these scans with this guy, Watanabe. I worked in Peru and found awesome tombs. And look, there's a void here and a void there. And there's signatures for wood and metal. And it's so cool. And, oh my God, I see the repainting of a face and I see the the messing with this hieroglyphic name. Oh my God, I think they repainted it. And he comes up with a very complicated, thoughtful theory for what could be that we did, did not expect to see in Tutankhamen's tomb, 18th dynasty tomb and the tomb that was there before. And what happens? But the public is insanely interested and almost every single Egyptologist won't mention it without rolling their eyes and making fun of it and saying, this is absolutely ridiculous, unless they're in a documentary where they might be paid to do it. And then they're like, oh, no, it's completely possible, but I don't know. And it's it's like they don't want to engage in actual hypothetical thought making. They don't want to see beyond their training or can't see beyond their training that anything beyond is laughable. And for this is not laughable stuff. This is like, oh, yeah, I see the line. There too, and it lines up with the corridor. Holy shit. And oh my God, I see that that hieroglyph redone as well. And look at that. And it's all you have to do is then produce, get somebody to produce, get somebody to produce some scans that say, oh no, it's just solid rock. And it was like, wah, wah. Okay. And it's interesting how how believed that was by the public and how much it shut down the the public uh, discourse. A major thing that
1: played into that, aside from the huge political pushback, is that the discovery of King Tut's tomb, Tunnel mask, these are iconic, an an iconic moment in archaeological history, an iconic ancient artifact. And people have a conception of the story that's behind it. We know where it comes from. This is the narrative. And I think a big problem that people have is is like if you did present the world with evidence that there was extraterrestrial life, you have just cracked open everybody's conception of who they are, where they fit into the universe. And I think on a Egyptological minor scale, that's what this would be for some people is you just you've busted and left in fragments that story that everybody grew up with at this point. It's, right? a, it's
0: myth-making. It's myth-making. And it so anyone... And, and yeah. it ignores the yeah. fact that
1: Howard Carter was suspicious yeah, and definitely thought that there was something more to be found and made a little bit of effort himself to find it. But he also, partly probably because of political reasons, didn't want to push it. You can only imagine he probably felt that he had enough work with the discovery mm-hmm. that had already been made. But I think that people have a difficult time whenever you mess with certain core or foundational ideas like that. Mm-hmm. I think for Egyptology, King Tut's tomb and King Tut himself, common is that guy. He's the blockbuster Egyptological icon.
0: Yeah, the fact that there are scratches of an old name on the mask of Tutankhamen. And, and I'll say something like, oh yeah, I think that that mask could easily have been reused that there's there's traces of an old name. It's there. You can see it. You can see it in the photography. And Egyptologists in my respect are like, no, 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 you can't say that. Because it's been mythologized to such an extent that it's divinized. And to say something against it is not scientific discourse and hypothesizing. It is an asthma. It is heresy. It's saying that George Washington was a slave owner and that we should take down a statue. And then people's heads explode and they're like, that's the mythology or the divinization of the United States. And they can't handle it. So it's just it's interesting how we've divinized certain parts of certain kings. Ramses the Great had to have a chapter on him and the good kings, of course. Divine akhenaten is the first monotheist the khufu is the pyramid builder i mean i had to go after these guys and dissect do a dissection and say what are we missing how does this power work why do you believe in it why is this so much of a thing and then try to get to the end of it but i still won't be on ancient aliens but i think that the show is popular for a reason <laughs>
1: <laughs> I agree. I agree. And I'm I'm glad that there are people out there that will start some of these conversations and damn the consequences, so to speak, because there are consequences. There are. Um, and like you said, I think that conversations are happening, but my feeling is that it will be a very long time before the tide will shift. You have little currents here and there, but I think for the time being, there's a lot of
0: uncertainty. Um yeah. There's a scarcity-based mindset. Everyone's in a scarcity mindset. I'm going to lose what I have. Whether they're at their university and they have a postdoc and they're trying to get a position or they have a junior professor position and they're trying to get something more senior, the more frightened people are, the less brave they are. And the more people in those senior positions want to maintain their power, the more gatekeeping they'll do. And that, unfortunately, is the way most of academia is set up in my opinion. And it's just, you know, it just is. And it's hard then to be somebody who's training PhD students and telling them, go help, be brave, be brave, people knowing that the, it's like being a parent. And you're like, oh, my God, you're beautiful and amazing. Now go out. And then the world beats you. <laughs> I mean, it's no different from being a parent, but this is just what we do.
1: Yeah, it's true. You have to set them free and let them make their own choices.
0: And navigate the world as best they can. And the same goes for books because they they are my children too and I send them out. And then they have the lives of their own. They have their own, just like you send a kid out and it's not like, I'm going to pick you up after school, baby. No, they go off and they do their own thing. The books go out and they get their own lives and they have their own reputations and they have their own ways of speaking. It's a weird thing now that I've written multiple books that go out to the public that I can see how that works and that that some of them speak to certain people and some speak to other people and some are more... The perception will
1: change over time because I think the initial reception of Good Kings ultimately will be very different from the way it's looked at a few years in the future.
0: Well, as I've told you many times, Amber, I'll say it here, that The Good Kings was written before its time. It was written in the heat of 2020 with me looking at a growing authoritarianism around the world that I think wasn't as clear to the scholars in my field or to the public at large as it is now. And now when we talk about authoritarianism, I think there's, you know, I wrote this before January 6th and I wrote this before whatever is going to happen in the election of 24, but it's going to get worse before it gets better. And it's an interesting thing for me even to go back and read because I can feel my 2020 self, my pandemic self as I read it. And, and let's see how that ages, how that works.
1: Yeah. As usual, ending on a high note. It's
0: (laughs) so positive and happy. Just remember, just because you're modern doesn't mean you're exceptional. That's true. So, or pandemic didn't prove it, so let's see if a whole bunch of um broken structures will help to prove it but humanity is resilient and we'll make it through together and we will puzzle through the entirety of it because god knows it may not be a great time to be alive but it's a very interesting time to be alive and if you believe like i do in like karmic rebirths and if you go back to the ancient world when there were only like how many people on the globe i don't know how many millions but you know, like 10, 50 million or so. I don't know. I don't know these numbers demographically, but right now we've got 8 billion people on the planet. It's like we've all come back for this moment <laughs> and we are at a peak of population in the next, what, 50 years? And then it's going to go down from there. If you want to think about things in terms of, of rebirths, it's like we're all here for this massive historical moment, this massive reckoning. And I know I sound a little woo right now, but it's kind of this, um. I think we all feel it we all feel that there is a big human reorganization taking place now and it's not pretty it's messy and and we're all here for it so
1: stay tuned and
0: gather those supplies for the coming zombie apocalypse get your your radio your crank radio so you can listen to afterlives of ancient egypt thank you to our listeners for your support and please subscribe if you enjoyed the show, share it with all your friends, and most importantly, leave us a five-star review. Send all those ancient world questions and topic suggestions for future episodes to at substack.com. We actually do read them all. You can find info on all my books, articles, and upcoming lectures on my website. Just head to karakuniegyptologist.com. Amber puts all of that together. Oh my God, thank you, Amber. Check out our Substack Ancient Now at ancientnow.substack.com, where we share perspectives on all of that history and archaeology news every week and continue the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off. Support the show by becoming a paid subscriber at our Substack Ancient Now community. This keeps the show free for everyone, and paid status gives you access to our archives. Thank you to our current supporters. I'm at all the social medias. Look for at Kara Thanks to the team at Patina Productions for this podcast, which I must point out is wholly separate from my academic work at UCLA. See you next time on Afterlives of Ancient Egypt.